It's Tuesday, April 9th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from MFAM Funds, a proud graduate of the University of Virginia Law School, Bill Barker. Congratulations to your Cavaliers. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was a good run. Heck of a run. And we've got condolences to our colleague Mike Robinson, who's a Texas Tech grad, who was at the basketball game last night. Uh, but congrats to uh, Matt Trogdon, our colleague, and the many UVA graduates who work here at Fool Headquarters. A lot of, uh, lot of orange and blue around the office today. A lot of people flying the colors, and why not? They should. Yeah, I mean, we're, this is a Virginia company. That's true. That's true. People and, don't people don't know that. And let's face it, um, when it comes to major college sports, you're probably going to have a better shot at winning a national title with your law school than your undergraduate alma mater. Time will tell. I guess. I guess we'll <laughs> see. Uh, we're going to dip into the full mailbag. We've got news from the healthcare industry, the packaged foods industry. Let's start with this. Uh, get the popcorn ready. Because on Wednesday, the CEOs of the biggest banks in America are heading to Capitol Hill to testify before the House Financial Services Committee. The rundown is Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan, uh, Michael Corbat from Citi, David Solomon from Goldman Sachs, Jim Gorman from Morgan Stanley, Brian Moynihan from Bank of America. We'll get to Wells Fargo in a second. Uh, coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, Bank of America announcing today that the company is raising the minimum wage at its company to $20 an hour. And if nothing else, the timing of that announcement makes Wednesday probably a little less painful for Brian Moynihan testifying on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I think so. I don't think there's much coincidence about it. I think it's... We'll see. It seems like a smart political play at the moment, uh, getting the headlines that uh, that they want and uh, positioning, and they'll they'll expound on that uh, a bit in front of the cameras. So I think that uh, it takes some of the wind out of the sails of, of those that are going to attack at least Bank of America, and I you know I think every everybody is going to be under pressure to to respond. So, in terms of Wells Fargo, at the moment, if someone from Wells Fargo is on the list to testify, I haven't seen it yet. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen. We've still got time before the hearing. But I'm reminded of a conversation I had a couple of years back with Paul Leinert, who's covered the automotive industry for 30 plus years. And we have him on Motley Fool Money pretty much every year around. The North American International Auto Show in January, and talking to Paul about how about the ripple effect of automaker X having some sort of large failure and failure to disclose the failure of whatever the the technology is, whether you know it's Volkswagen and the emission standard, and just sort of the ripple effect. Like if you're if you're any of the other automakers, you're like, oh god, because they they all pay for it in some small way. And by the same token, Wells Fargo just continuing to screw up in terms of 
their own culture, the the fake account scandal, Tim Sloan, who was there when the scandal happened, not being the right person to try and clean up the mess, and then you know he has shown the door. If you're any of these other CEOs, I have to believe in the back of their mind at some point tomorrow they want to say, "Hey, at least we're not Wells Fargo." I mean, it just—it's one of those things where, yes, it's a Wells Fargo problem, but it really does spread to the other banks. Yeah, I think that they'll probably, to the extent they can, sort of redirect the questioning toward, oh, well, Wells Fargo. You know, <laughs> you probably would have enjoyed having them here to kick around. And I was—I was looking up some of the data on what's been paid so far post. Uh, 0809, uh, and there have been about a about a quarter of a trillion dollars in um, fines against the banks, and not all that's cash. Some of that is has been settled in by uh, loan forgiveness and and some other credits. Uh, but it's a you know in terms of there was a bailout of the banks, true enough, and they paid back the money that they. Were in some cases forced to borrow from from the federal government, but but that was paid back, and um, they have paid fines. And I don't know that that it is a strong thing to say. Hey, look, we've already paid a quarter of a trillion, you know, combined in fines. So don't act like we haven't, uh, you know, already been punished. That's that's not going to get them anywhere. But um, you know, they can talk obliquely, I guess, about having made amends at, at times. Well, and one difference between now and five years ago, eight years ago, that sort of thing, is you can make a pretty strong case that big banks are no longer number one um, on Capitol Hill's enemy list in terms of the business world. I think the big tech has probably supplanted them. So, for any CEO who wants to trot out there, well, hey, at least we're not Wells Fargo. They could just as easily say, and by the way, we're also not Facebook. Yeah, well, and I don't know that that's going to go anywhere either. So they've got to create the accentuate the positive part of the story in this twenty dollar minimum pay, which Monahan has said. Look, anybody who works here is going to be making at least forty one thousand dollars a year. That sounds. Pretty good is if you're thinking in terms of a minimum wage job, of which there are essentially none in a bank. Right? You've got bank tellers to the degree that that's a major part of the employment of banks. I don't know how much that's the case, but you don't have a lot of employees who are probably you know competing with at any of these banks who are thinking of what are the other minimum wage jobs that I would be comparing this against but I think it is a positive and they're pointing to it in part as something that they are doing they're they're connecting the dots between the tax cut and making this you know sort of passing on some of the profits that they have they are sitting on from from the massive tax cut, uh, so uh, you know that will get them some of the way with with maybe about you know one half of the aisle, one side of the aisle will will allow them to talk about that, and uh, the other half probably less so. Like I said, get the popcorn ready. 
Let's move on to Cerner Corp., which is a healthcare technology firm. Cerner has reached an agreement with Starboard Value, well-known activist investors, to add four members to the board of directors. Cerner is also buying back $1.2 billion worth of stock. Which of these two things is pushing shares of Cerner up 10% today? Because my assumption is, just based on the fact that Shares of Cerner have sort of treaded water over the last five years or so. I'm assuming it's the board seats. I think, uh, yeah, swimming along in the uh, the line that Starboard is is recommending. It's a remarkable. Starboard really doesn't have that much uh, of Cerner. I think I read about one percent of Cerner stock, uh, but there's a whole laundry list of. Changes that are going to be made, um, including the strategic business unit uh, being eliminated. I think that uh, the dividend uh, was just recently started by Cerner, and it, it looks like they are going to be forced to change some of their capital allocation, including at least an authorization to buy back up to $1.2 billion, whether that gets follow through or not. Uh, we'll see, but I, I think the board seats is, you know, that's that's all part of the equation. I don't know how you can separate a twelve percent move when it opened, and now it's maybe eight or nine percent, and you know what part of of that is ascribed to what part of this whole package. I'm not looking to knock starboard value, but I am curious about something that you just said, which is that starboard value only has a one percent. Of Cerner's stock, how are they getting four seats on the board if they only have one percent of the stock? This seems like something you get when you have at least five percent of the stock, and really closer to ten percent of the stock. Uh, I agree. I was surprised when when I read that, and so I want to admit that uh, I, I need to make sure that that's the case before um, going too far. But if it is the case, uh, you can. Uh, you can guess that they have some other shares that they are in communication with that are on their side, uh, because yeah, one percent is one percent. If that's all that it means, is hey, sell your one percent if you know if you're, right. if you're that right. unhappy. I mean, we don't we don't you don't have as much power as you think. But if they have plenty of people on their Rolodex and you know know where to push the buttons and uh, organize the. The votes uh, at that proxy time, then that's a different story. Yeah, I was going to say, if in fact it's only one percent, then that opens up a whole world of opportunity for activist investors potentially. Um, our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Question from Deng, who is writing from China. Uh, Deng writes, I've been listening to Market Foolery since I started investing in stocks in 2014. Lately, I've been looking at some large cap stocks which may not grow that fast. Uh, and cites as examples Kroger, General Motors, and some airline stocks. Uh, it goes on to write, I'm considering their PE values, which are below 10, making them cheaper than the market average. Are they a bargain or are they potential traps? Oh, the age old question, dang. Value play or value trap? Because that is always the thing that sucks in. I was going to say value investors, but really a lot of investors. Just you know, there are growth investors who just see a stock get knocked down twenty percent in one day and immediately start thinking, "Well, look, it's it's on sale twenty percent, so you know maybe I should be jumping in here." Um, 
how do you help people think about solving this question? Because we're talking about more than one stock here, um, and we're not going to go through like you know Kroger General. We're you know we're not going to go through all of them, but. What do you sort of look for once once you've made that initial calculation of okay, here's a large cap, it's not going away, um, and sometimes we're looking at large companies that are paying a dividend, uh, so there's uh, some reason to buy them. Uh, maybe this business isn't setting the world on fire, but you've done the math and you say, well, look from a PE standpoint, this is significantly cheaper than the overall market. Why shouldn't I buy a few shares? Yeah, it is a good question. And uh, to take the PE, uh, so it's um, I'm looking at data that right now, in comparison to its forward earnings, uh, GE, for instance, is at 5.8 times forward earnings. And boy, that sounds cheap. That is cheap. Over the last five years, the average is 6.2. It's usually for the market for the last five years for GE. Oh, for For GE. GE. So GE is not. eh, It's maybe you know five percent cheaper than its five-year average in comparison to the forward earnings expectations. And why is it so cheap? One, the forward earnings tend to be overly optimistic, not only for GE but for everybody at this time of the year. You're still you've only got one quarter not even yet reported, and so there is the typical. Enthusiasm about the year ahead, uh, and uh, as the year goes down, and companies report and they say, "Oh, you know, we're we're not going to earn quite as much as we maybe thought we did, or as you thought we did." Uh, additionally, just it's a highly cyclical uh, industry, autos, and auto sales have, have begun to uh, level and decline, and that is the way cycles work. And so you're looking at Pretty good rear view earnings for GE, and you know it's just that highly cyclical stocks don't carry big multiples because when they have good earnings, it seems like oh now it seems really cheap and I can go back to 2016 and and find that the company was trading at four times earnings, and you know then it was over after last year. Had a little bit of a decline. The it, it's is this GE or General Motors? Sorry, General Motors. Okay. Have I been wow. saying GE? Yeah, all this you've been time? saying GE this whole time. Well, it's pretty cyclical too. But <laughs> no, <laughs> I, was G- like, I was like, General how is Motors. GE? GM, GM, General Motors. Can we? Can Dan? Can we just uh, filter all that out? Is there is there some sort of <laughs> no. AI programming that can solve uh, all of my <laughs> misstatements? If there was an AI program, believe me, the AI program would be sitting in that chair right now. <laughs> Um, yeah, we'll we'll put a little note in the uh, in the description of the podcast, and hopefully people will read that. Um, that makes a lot more sense to me that we're you know that you've been talking about General Motors this whole time. Um, it makes sense that I would be misstating things for minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Kroger is is fairly similar. You know the. Uh, major grocers, they're not growing very much. In fact, they're under some increased pressure from um, Amazon slash Whole Foods. And uh, so they're not really expected to sort of compound earnings, particularly. People aren't going to be eating more next year than they are this year. 
so you're really looking at sort of population growth as as the driver of what they what they can do, other than acquiring other grocery chains, and that doesn't look like a, the greatest use of capital uh, at the moment either. So Kroger is um, trading at. Uh, well, one of the multiples is trading at 0.16 times sales. Of course, there's very, very, very low margins uh, for for grocers, and that is quite a bit less than than the five-year average uh, of 0.26. So, you know, on a valuation basis, I'm a little bit more attracted by that, but I'm not really so attracted at what the next five years uh, looks like for Kroger. Well, I think it's a great point that. Again, the question is, I'm looking at these stocks and their PE relative to the market. And I think the you know the point uh, you made at the beginning before you started confusing GE and GM was hey, don't just look at that. I mean, that's a that's a good point of comparison, but you also want to look at what is the PE of this stock relative to what it has been. Compare the valuation to itself. Um, because, as you said, you know, in the case of General Motors, yes, it's cheap relative to the market, but relative to what it has been over the last couple of years, it's not like it's trading at some amazing discount to what it has been. Yeah, you want to compare it to its own history and to its sector, to its closest competitors, and you know, in that case, you normally learn fairly quickly whether there's something company specific. Uh, or whether it's a broader application to, uh, you know, the industry. Uh, Ford right now is trading at uh, seven times earnings, so a little bit more expensive, but not meaningfully so. Uh, speaking of large caps, there's a story from last week that we did not get to uh, about Kellogg. Uh, Kellogg is getting out of the cookie business, uh, so it can focus on breakfast cereal and snacks. Um, Kellogg is selling its Keebler cookie brands and Famous Amos to Ferrero for $1.3 billion. Ferrero, the parent company of Nutella and Tic Tacs, two tasty things that don't necessarily taste great together. But um, This seems like a good move for Kellogg, because you look at the cookie brands that they had, they were Doing less than a billion dollars in sales and driving not a lot of money in terms of operating profit. So it seems like even though the breakfast cereal industry has its challenges, this seems like I think if I'm a Kellogg shareholder, I'm generally happy about this move. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much it was distracting them um, from focusing on on cereals. Uh, if it was, then it's a good. Move to uh, uh, to get rid of it. It doesn't seem like I mean Keebler cookies. It kind of runs on its own. I mean, you get some synergies from just having taking up more shelf space in in the grocery store. So uh, that allows you some economies of scale. But you know, maybe it wasn't in this case. Maybe uh, the cookies were being you know the, the logistics of getting the cookies into the same place that the Breakfast cereals were going was not achieving any economies of scale. I don't know. I, I think that uh, you know consumers won't notice any difference uh, ultimately. No, they definitely won't. Um, I think that and look, Kellogg's been trying to sell these for at least since the end of last year. So this this was something that they were able to execute. Maybe they didn't get the price that they wanted, but they were clearly looking to streamline um, and good for them. 
because, like you said, consumers aren't going to be able to tell the difference. And I'm sure on some, like for for all of the uh, jokes I make at the expense of Mondelez, I mean they're they're really crushing it in the cookie business. And so uh, I'm sure part of the thesis for Kellogg was like, look. We don't need to keep doing this. We can't compete with seventy flavors of Oreos. We can't, and we're not going to anymore. (laughs) We're going to let that be someone else's problems. Now, we'd like to introduce you to seventy flavors of Pop Tarts. Let's talk about that, and that's working for Kellogg. Yeah, uh, I think that uh, there are quite a few flavors of Pop Tarts uh, popping up, but they're not as not quite as trendy as the Oreos. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they don't have like the flavor of the day kind of thing. The Oreos seems they to. don't, and the uh, the Oreos with it. the thing about Oreos that has not broken through for Pop Tarts is the brand marketing um, uh, alliances that you see. So the most recent one for Oreos is the Game of Thrones uh, inspired Oreo cookies with the final season of Game of Thrones getting ready to start, and it's like okay, you know, no. I guarantee you, the HBO marketing people were not going to Kellogg saying, "Look, we have an idea. It's a Game of Thrones breakfast cereal or Game of Thrones Pop Tarts." Um, no, that's that's an easy one. That's a layup. Who would not want dragon flavored Oreos? What what does that taste like? I think they're just going like they're just going like straight up chocolate. I think they're like baked. Based What's on that got base? to do with Game of Thrones? Uh, I don't know. It's like they haven't been watching the show at all. I don't think these are dragon flavored. Well, that's just a missed opportunity. Uh, you would you would have thought Oreos would have been on top of that one. Well, there's a Game of Thrones fan in my house, so I think I'm going to have to pick up a box of one of these things for all of my railing against Mondelez. I'm actually going to be you're, contributing you're, to. You're going to fall for it, huh? Well, you know, I mean, if, if I can momentarily buy one of my kids' love, uh, you know, just for a few bucks, yeah, sure, I'll do that. I have no problem doing that. Don't tell me you haven't done that before. Most uh, parents have done that. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, here's a little thing. I'll spend a couple of bucks. My kid will be happy. No, that'll be that. Yeah. I mean, it's just Oreos. I mean, how. Right. <laughs> it's, not gonna be, it's not wasted money. Right. They're going to get eaten. Might as well benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can read more from Bill Barker and his colleagues. Maybe in the next issue of Declarations, their free monthly newsletter at MFAM Funds, maybe they're going to write about GE. Maybe they're going to write about GM. Maybe both. There's only one way to find out, people. Go to mfamfunds.com and sign up for Declarations. It's free, for crying out loud. And it's good, too. It's actually it's really good content from Bill Barker and the MFAM Funds team. So, check it out. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Fool. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.